after two months of the heaviest bombing I ever suffered, we had to flee. So I went to say goodbye to my city, my neighborhoods, my schools, and then went to my friend's graves to, to say goodbye and say sorry that I couldn't stay. Afra Hashem never wanted to leave Aleppo. She had been a teacher there and an activist. She made art with Syrian children living through a civil war. But in 2016, she and her family had no choice left but to evacuate. I took with me my student uh, pictures that they drew, books from my dad, all of these valuable things to me, and some documents for my family. She packed all of this up in her car, getting ready to go. There was supposed to be a ceasefire, but then the Assad regime and its allies started bombing the city anyway. Afra's car caught fire. And I lost everything, every document. So in that time, I felt that, oh my God, even my memory, they want me to go out without even my memory. So I, I really felt that I'm, I'm, I'm totally broken. Over the last decade, millions of people like Afra have been forced to flee their homes. Syrian cities like Aleppo have been reduced to rubble. Hundreds of thousands have died, including many children. After a decade of conflict, Syria has fallen off the front page. And yet, the situation remains a living nightmare. I'm Clarissa Ward. CNN's chief international correspondent. Of all the stories I've covered, Syria is probably the closest to my heart. In my years reporting there, I found the people to be kind, generous, and cultured. The activists I've met always stunned me with their bravery. Are you scared? Who is not? But we have to continue. We decided to start our revolution. This is what we have been dreaming of long time ago. But in the end, that bravery was no match for the Assad regime and the foreign powers that backed it. The rebels were up against barrel bombs, chemical weapons, and indiscriminate airstrikes. Over the course of a decade, the activists built what they could, but they lost a lot more. It's like you start to question, are we like human beings in the eyes of the world? Looking back, many now ask themselves, was it all worth it? After all this struggle, and for what? In vain, or our efforts were in vain? What do you do with a revolution that is all but dead? If there's no justice in this life, there will be always God justice. This is Tug of War, Episode 6, Syria. Syria before the war. I still remember the first time I visited. It was 2005. I was 25 years old, a freelance producer based in Beirut. Damascus was just a two and a half hour drive away, but entering the city felt like stepping into another time. I remember walking through the markets and the pungent smell of spices and perfume, Arabic pop music pouring out of the shops, melting into the call for prayer from the Umayyad Mosque, 
one of the holiest sites in Islam. But there was also a more sinister side to the city. My hotel lobby was always filled with mysterious men in ill-fitting suits, smoking cigarettes, watching my every move. They were the notorious mukhabarat, the secret police, who could disappear you at any time. Everyone was afraid of them. Syria had been a police state for decades under the tight grip of the Ba'ath Party. When I was very young, whenever there was presidential elections, on that day we used to go to like 10 electoral centers and all of them used to allow us to vote. So we were voting 10 times when I was underage. 37-year-old Rami Al-Sayed is from the suburbs of Damascus. He's been a media activist since the beginning of the Syrian revolution, documenting atrocities of the war for the world to see. Rami spoke to us from inside rebel-held Syria for this podcast. He doesn't speak English, so you'll be hearing from our translator, Iyad Kurdi. At the beginning, like in the old times, we used to be like completely absent from reality. The education system was designed to praise al-Ba'ath regime. The Ba'ath regime, also known as a family autocracy. Back in the 1970s, Hafez al-Assad took power in a coup and proceeded to build one of the world's most effective police states. Our life was good morning bath party. We salute bath party in schools, on TV. Everything was saluting bath party. At the time I was there, the second son, Bashar al-Assad, had just taken over after his father's death. The family's dominance over public life was everywhere. Literally every place I visited in Syria had a portrait of Bashar hung in the doorway. On the surface, he appeared to be the perfect leader, a family man, a man of the people, a commander-in-chief. There was no questioning his authority or his policies. But all that changed in 2011. Protests erupt in Algeria, then Yemen. In Bahrain, Morocco, Jordan. Protests have gone on all day long, but still the square is packed with people. Did you ever imagine that this would be happening in Egypt? Never. One month ago, I would never imagine. The world's attention now focused on Syria. Will it be the next domino to fall? And then a group of teenagers in a town called Dera spray-painted an anti-regime slogan onto their school wall. I interviewed one of them back in 2012 while working for CBS. They had no idea that their actions would spark a revolution. We saw it during the other Arab revolutions, he said. We just wrote the same. The people want the downfall of the regime, they wrote. For this innocent act of defiance, the boys were arrested and tortured for weeks. The people of Dara erupted in anger. In the main square of the town, they toppled the statue of Hafez al-Assad, Bashar's father. Security forces opened fire, killing 15 protesters that week. Some Syrians refer to them as the first martyrs of the revolution. Protests spread quickly across the country. Just outside of Damascus in suburbs like this, people are out here every single night and they're demanding an end to the regime. Rami was fresh out of college then. 
He had seen what had happened in Dara. So when he heard that a protest was being planned in his neighborhood in Damascus, even though it was dangerous, there was no way he was going to miss it. It happened after sunset prayer. A small crowd had gathered, and together they started marching down the street. So at the beginning, we started to chant, saying, we are with you till we are dead. There were a lot of people watching us from the balconies, from the stores, from the next trees, from the alleys. I can still describe the weird feeling that I had. It was like a bird who was in a cage, and you opened the cage for him, and he started to fly. He wasn't able to fly because he, well, he wasn't used to be able to fly, but he was very happy from being free from that cage. For me, till today, it was the best moment of my life. But that moment didn't last. Pretty quickly, security forces came to disperse the protest. This was a common occurrence as the protests continued to spread across the country. But remarkably, it didn't stop the protesters from showing up. Afra Hashem was quietly holding a candle in the city of Aleppo when police arrived. My husband was with me, but when the forces started to, to arrest everybody, we separated suddenly. I, I lost him and he lost me. And then I slipped down and I saw a man carrying like a big stick and started to hitting me. Afra was pregnant. She started yelling at the guy, explaining her situation, asking him not to hit her. But he didn't listen, of course. But I tried to just cover my stomach, to my, my tummy, to protect it. At that time, just I was arrested for one hour uh, just to discuss with me. And then they told me, you can go now. But after that, I lost my, my baby because of hitting. Four months later, she was pregnant again. She was stopped at a checkpoint. Once more, she was arrested and beaten. Her doctor was worried about her pregnancy, but the next year, she gave birth to a healthy baby girl, Nai. I never speak about this in front of my daughter. Not hurt her, you know, so hard as a, a girl. Afra and her family escaped to an area of Aleppo held by rebel fighters who supported the uprising. At the time, it was impossible to imagine how far out of control things would spiral. We'll be right back. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. 
And now save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life, lately we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu, which is caused by the H5N1 virus. If you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs, that would be a concern. That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. The Assad regime might have fallen if it hadn't been for Russia. In 2015, the Russians started deploying massive airstrikes against rebel-held areas to prop up the regime. They claimed they were aiming at terrorists, but on the ground, it was clear they were targeting civilians. Courthouses, schools, even hospitals were hit. I witnessed the destruction on my last reporting trip into Syria in 2016. We were driving around in a town called Ariha when we heard the planes. And then we watched as a bomb dropped on the town below us. But maybe if they're hitting the town, we shouldn't go into the town. Yeah, I'm just going to have a look. Okay. Uh, Looks like it's pretty close to here. Yeah. Someone radios in, telling our driver not to get near the strike zone. At the time, the regime was doing this thing where they would bomb an area, then right after first responders rushed in to help the wounded, they hit the same area again to maximize the number of casualties. It's called a double tap. We were worried that what we'd just seen was only round one. Our cameraman ran in for a quick look at the damage. The air was filled with dust. All around, people yelling and running, sirens blaring in the distance, volunteers desperately shoveling at the rubble as they tried to dig people out of the debris. The strike had hit a fruit market. You could still see oranges lying on the street. A man picked up an orange that had rolled onto the ground and waved it angrily at the camera. This is just a fruit market. Is this what you want, Bashar? He yelled. For four years, Afra Hashem lived in fear of bombings like this. Day and night, warplanes circled the city, dropping their payloads. Every moment could be the last. I don't know how to, to say that. It's like complicated feeling that, thanks God that I'm survived, but at the same time feeling guilty that, yeah, I'm survived, but my neighbor doesn't. Aleppo was Syria's largest city before the war. The regime was determined to take the eastern half back from the rebels. They pursued a pitiless, scorched-earth strategy. You couldn't help but wonder, what would there be to take back if there was nothing left? 
when the warplane destroyed the mosque or school or playground or anything. That means they destroyed your city, your country. So that's hurting me more than anything else. With Aleppo under siege and under regular attack, many schools were forced to close. And many children were left without education or mental health support. Afra ran three schools to help some of the neighborhood kids. There is no playgrounds to play because all the playing grounds became like graves. And, you know, there is any place to entertain themselves if they come out to the street that sniper will shoot them or they will maybe be injured or killed by bam. So I have to make something an alternative. Together, Afra and the kids used their imagination to while away the hours in the bunker, taking turns to put on plays that Afra wrote or painting their nightmares away. The art lessons, they used to draw like bomb, fire, blood, and we were trying just to encouraging them drawing something they like, they dream. So after that, their pictures became like full of colorful and hope, and they became like somehow more normal. So that gives you the feeling that, yeah, I'm doing something. As the war took over their lives, people did whatever they could to help the revolution. Afra found her place working with children. Rami El-Sayed picked up a camera and started filming. The importance of media, I take it as the famous picture of the Vietnamese child that changed the whole war perspective. I thought, like, I'm taking pictures and I might one day be able to stop this war. There were media activists like Rami all across the country, risking their lives to capture the devastation. There were times when Rami had nothing to eat, when he had no electricity or internet, but he always made sure to press record. Even for my laptop, like, I made this bicycle and I made a dynamo motor, so I was going on the bicycle, I was running it just to be able to charge my laptop. Rami showed us one of the videos he shot during that time, when his hometown Yarmouk was under siege. The regime cut off all supplies into the town, and people starved. In the video, you see a group of children are frantically fighting to scoop up the remains of a murky green liquid into buckets. The sludge looks like grass that's been mashed up and mixed with water. This is the only food they have. But there's not even enough to go around. You can hear the voice of a man in the background. It's over, he says. Nothing left. Rami spent years documenting the regime's atrocities. He uploaded videos online and shared them with international media. He was convinced that if everybody could just see this with their own eyes, they would do something. We are people who seek a peaceful movement. We wanted freedom, justice, and dignity. Those were our mottos. 
we thought that media war would be it, would be the answer, would be the, it would lead the world to stand with us and help us to get rid of this regime. But the world looked away. It's like you start to question, are we like human beings in the eyes of the world? What's happening was clear, it wasn't hidden. And it was like an unexplainable feeling of being let down by the world. I understand Rami's disappointment. Covering Syria, I was constantly racked with guilt, convinced that I wasn't doing enough. After five years of covering the war, the world's interest in Syria's story was waning, and the international community seemed reluctant to really intervene. I now give the floor to Clarissa Ward, CNN senior international correspondent. After my 2016 trip where I witnessed the fruit market bombing, the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. invited me to speak to the Security Council. Thank you so much, Ambassador Power, the U.N. Security Council, Dr. Attar, Dr. Sahlul. It's an honor to be here next to you. I first visited Aleppo in the summer of 2012, and I remember the drive towards... I looked around the room. The great powers were all represented. For them, it was another day at the office, so far removed from the people whose lives were being destroyed. I guess that was part of my job, to make sure these people who held so much power could not look away. In that moment, the only thing I could think of was, this is actually hell. This is what hell feels like. And there's no way it can get any worse than this. But it did. It got a lot worse. I could see some of them squirming in their seats. I could feel the Russian delegate glaring at me. Because the thing that has been killed in Syria is trust. There is no trust. No trust in the Assad regime, no trust in ceasefires or cessation of hostilities or humanitarian corridors, no trust in the Russians, and no trust in you, by the way, in us, in the international community. So in closing, I would just say this. As I said before, I've been a war correspondent for more than 10 years. I have been to Iraq, Afghanistan, Gaza, and every terrible conflict that you can think of. I have never seen anything on the scale of Aleppo. There are no winners in Aleppo. Thank you. More after the break. Afra Hashem and her family stayed in Aleppo through the bombings, the hunger, and the siege. But a few months after I spoke to the UN, the rebel-held part of the city fell to the regime. They had no choice but to flee. Why? I don't know why. Why I have to leave my house just to make this criminal ruler control our country? They were one of the last families left in the city. This was what the regime wanted, half a city in ruins, haunted by ghosts. So I went to the street to say goodbye to my city, my neighborhoods, my schools. I went to my school, looked at the doors, uh, windows, desk, tried to scream and call all my children, my, my students, but unfortunately the, the school was totally empty, no one, just me. And then went to my friend's graves to say goodbye. 
and say sorry that I can't stay in this city anymore. This was when the car full of her students' art caught fire, and Afra watched as her memories went up in flames. They spent days at the Turkish border, waiting for the regime to let them leave. The weather was so cold, snowing. It was snowing. Actually, I hate snow. I hate winter because it always reminding me of our suffering that bad days. No food, no bread, nothing. Just waiting for the, the decision. When they finally started to move, Afra began to cry. I felt very, very sad because although I'm moving to a safe side with my children, but in the same time, I'm leaving my city. So this is my last moment in my city. Who knows when I could come back to my neighborhood or my house. So I wanted my children to be to be sleepy. I asked them, please sleep, because I don't want them to remember these bad memories. More than half the Syrian population have now been forcibly displaced. Afra and her family went to Turkey and then to London. Rami al-Sayed was also forced to flee his hometown. Now he lives in a camp in Idlib province, the last remaining rebel-held province in the country. Imagine like moving from a place where you have a house and furniture and kitchen and bathrooms and move just to a tent. There were only two blankets and nothing else. That same tent is where he did the interview with us. There's no electricity, no heat, no running water. The rough conditions around him were expected to be temporary, but they've become semi-permanent. Idlib is controlled by Islamist extremists, and it still faces a lot of bombings. But it's become a safe haven of sorts for some anti-regime activists. We asked Rami to use his camera to give us a tour. He shows us his kitten, a three-month-old stray that he now cares for. Outside the tent, you can hear the neighborhood kids playing soccer. It's very bare inside. There's a small fan, a TV screen, and a mattress. But he says it's considered to be one of the best tents around. Rami says that as long as he's still alive, he's one of the lucky ones. And we're living, thank God. Uh, We are not living a normal life, a normal human being life, but thank God. Rami is now working as a freelance photographer for AFP, a global newswire. He's one of the few media activists who is still in the country. He wants to keep documenting what's happening with the hope that someday the regime will be brought to trial for war crimes. I want to live. I believe that the victory moments will come because there is no injustice that lasted forever. The loss was severe, but with God's willing, victory will be on our side. No matter what the world did, the people always win. If there's no justice in this life, there will be always God justice. Thousands of miles away in London, Afra still dreams about Syria. Yesterday, for example, I woke up 
shouting and tell my husband I I dream that uh, the regime arrested me and you again. So this is the frequent nightmare for every Syrian. When she feels depressed, she finds herself wondering why she made it and friends of hers did not. I always ask myself, why God chose me to be like this? Is it a kind of punishment? Did I did something wrong in my life? So why? Why I had to, to stand all this suffering? And for what? In vain or our efforts were in vain? Afra no longer thinks the revolution was worth it. There's been too much pain, too much death, too much suffering. But she also points out that the fact that Assad's regime reacted in such an extreme and violent way to the uprising was proof that there needed to be one. This country needs revolution. If it didn't happen 10 years ago, it will happen now, this year or last year or next year. So it's a need to change. I dream that someday I see my country safe, full of justice and a free country. This March, people from all over Idlib gathered in the main square to commemorate the 10-year anniversary of the Syrian revolution. Despite the misery of the ongoing war, it was a festive affair. Kids sitting on their father's shoulders, watching with curiosity, people waving the Syrian revolutionary flag, singing revolutionary songs and dancing together. The people want the downfall of the regime. They're chanting the same chant that protesters said 10 years ago, the same slogan that those teenage boys first painted in Dera. In this fleeting moment, you can feel the old heart and soul of the uprising still beating. At this stage, it's clear that President Bashar al-Assad has won the war. But in the process, he lost his country. Some estimate that more than half a million people have been killed in the conflict. In some ways, Syria shows the incredible power of grassroots resistance. But it's also a cautionary tale about the massive human cost of taking on a repressive regime. Those who remain now are more focused on survival than the fight for freedom. The flame of the revolution, ignited in 2011, has been reduced to just a flicker, but it's not quite snuffed out. Tug of War is a CNN Audio original series production. Megan Marcus is our executive producer, and Haley Thomas is our senior producer. Our podcast producer is Emily Liu. Our associate producers are Alex Stern, Nathan Miller, and Xavier Lopez. Story editing by Tim Lister. Mixing and sound design by Francisco Monroy. On the ground reporting by me, Selma Abdulaziz, Bilal Abdul Karim, Arwa Damon, Gul Tusuz, and Brice Lanay. 
This episode would not have been possible without the help of my friend Arwa Damon and our Syrian fixer and translator Iyad Kurdi, who once said he could get us an interview with anyone in Syria except Bashar al-Assad, and I don't think that's a brag. With support from Colin Wallace, Miriam Annenberg, David Lindsay, Chip Grabo, Alessandria Massi, Kelly Slade, Ashley Lusk, Lindsay Abrams, Rafina Ahmed, Lisa Namaro, and Courtney Coop. For more on my experience reporting from Syria, check out my book On All Fronts, The Education of a Journalist, available now in paperback. That's all for season one of Tug of War. We'll be back in your podcast feed if there's an update on a story we covered. And do join us for a new season of the series in 2022. Thank you for listening. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... Lately, we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu, which is caused by the H5N1 virus. If you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs, that would be a concern. That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app.